This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. The, uh, the scripture reading this morning is, uh, is going to come from Matthew 27. Uh, we're going we're to start in chapter 27, verse 57. We're going to read through 28, verse 15 of Matthew. Matthew 27, verse 57 is where we'll start. Would you, would you stand? <clears throat> now, when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how this deceiver said, After three days I will rise. And therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away to say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And so the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it secure. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there you will see me. And now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled together the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. And so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come again in the name of Jesus, Lord thanking you, Father, for these, uh, these facts that um, we've just looked at, read, 
Thank you for what you have done in history to bring about salvation, to call out a people from the world to yourself, to do what is nothing less than miraculous. And a product of your, your grace, your loving mercy. Father, we pray that you just impress upon our hearts the reality of these things, the reality of the life and suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the reality of the resurrection. And Lord, may our hearts be filled with gratitude, thanksgiving, and love to You. May it all abound to Your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Brother Dickey, we still on for tonight? Brother? All right, good. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <clears throat> Looking forward to it. We, uh, we sang a few moments ago about uh, rest in the Lord. Uh, and boy, I tell you, the, the words um, so often of, uh, of Fannie Mae, Crosby, Fanny Crosby are just uh, are just uh, good. <laughs> make make your heart rejoice. I tell you, um, are you at rest in Christ? I mean, there's great reason to be, and that's one of the things that you know, I was thinking that just as we were singing. That's one of the things that I hope we we glean from this. Um, there's great reason to be. At rest in the Savior, to be happy in Him. I tried pretty much last Sunday night to. Um, we, we we primarily we talked about the the uh, the crucifixion itself and tried to pretty much cover the remainder of uh, chapter twenty-seven. We didn't we didn't quite do that, but just kind of touched on all of it. I, I, I just wanted to come back to a little bit of it for this reason, um, and that is the, the, the main point, and I know this is, this is so simple, but, but, but still such a profound uh, truth. The main point for this morning is, is simply this. He was dead and is alive. He was dead. <laughs> and and is living. He in John when John the uh, the Revelator, as he's often called, in in the first chapter of his of his uh, book, the Revelation, we know as the Revelation, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus introduces himself in in that vision um, to the apostle John as the Living One. If you go down to about verses seventeen and eighteen, Revelation one, I am the Living One. The one who became dead 
and is living. That's, that's astounding. First of all, if you know anything about the, the person of Jesus Christ, and, and as Christians we do because of what He's given us in His Word, when He says, I'm the living one, that's, that's not just to say, in, in His case, it's not just to say, I'm alive at this moment. But He is the source of life, and He is the one who has always lived from all eternity. And, and that same Apostle John makes that clear in the prologue of his Gospel. He, Jesus, the eternal Word, Lagos is the term there for Word, the eternal Lagos was in the beginning. That is, in other words, He, he already was. In the beginning. And John is, is in, by no coincidence, using um, language from Genesis 1 when, when, he, when he gives us that phrase, in the beginning, in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, so he's taking us back to uh, the point at which all things came to be. In the beginning, John is saying, he, the Lagos, which is Jesus, already was. So he starts out his gospel by saying, this is the one who has always been. That is, he has always lived. He has always existed. He never, in, in contrast to all other things that John, in fact, goes on to mention, Jesus, the Lagos, the eternal Word of God, never came into being. And that's hard for us to get our minds around because that, that is all we know, in fact, as um, R.C. Uh, Sproul pointed out uh, in one of his one of his lectures, uh, uh, if if we were to be um, more precise about ourselves, we we wouldn't call ourselves human beings. We would call ourselves human becomings, because there's only one absolute being, perfect being, and all we know in our experience is becoming. And we're constantly becoming. And everything we know about, everything we know about came into being at some point. Or maybe we uh, witnessed it become. But the eternal Word, the eternal Lagos, Jesus Christ, has always been. He's the living One. And yet, he goes on to say to John in Revelation 1, I became dead. So he never came into being. He never had a beginning. But there were some things that he became, interestingly enough. And in fact, one of them is, is given to us again in John 1, in the first chapter of John's Gospel. He, he always was. He's always been. Yet, you get down to verse 14 of John 1. He says, he became flesh. The Word who always was, who, who had no beginning, who had no becoming, as it were, in terms of being, He never came to be, but He became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Jesus Himself says in Revelation 1, I am the living one who became dead. 
We probably don't realize um, a lot of times how, how important that, that fact really is. And if you go back to Matthew 27, and that's where I'm, I'm going to start, is with, with um, the death of Jesus. He, he was dead. He was dead. And we, we, we find that taking place. Um, if you look in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour that there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's a quote from Psalm 22. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. They confused, uh, when he said, my God, my God, they, they confused that from, uh, for, for uh, the name Elijah, thinking he was calling for Elijah. And one of them ran it uh, once, ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That is, he died. He became dead. He yielded up his spirit. Now, this, this is presented in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament. As fact, had someone say to me one time, um, you know, it doesn't really matter whether Jesus really lived. In other words, it doesn't matter that he was a historical character, that he actually lived. Uh, it could be a myth. It doesn't matter. Well, all that matters, this person said, is, is the, the values that Christianity has brought to the world. This person who doesn't even like Christianity nevertheless saw that um, some things about it were were, were uh, commendable in, in their view. So, so it doesn't matter whether Jesus ever lived and died. It just, just matters, you know, the good things that Christianity has brought to the world. I guess things like, you know, love your, love your neighbor and do unto others as you would have them do to you, that sort of thing. Well, it, it, it matters. And it not only matters that he lived, it matters that he died. I mean, this, this is one of the facts. You know, the gospel is good news, and news is facts. I know we've kind of lost that in our day. You turn on the news, a lot of times you don't get facts. <laughs> but, that's, but that's what news is supposed to be. It's, it's the reporting of facts. And the gospel is, is not giving us a myth. It's not giving us a, a feel-good story to kind of, uh, as a crutch, you know, to kind of help us through life, to help us psychologically deal with the hardships that we deal with, the Gospels are giving us, that is, the Gospel reports, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, along with the rest of the New Testament, or you could just say the Gospel in general, the good news about Jesus Christ, is presenting us with facts. He existed. He lived. He lived as a man. He became man. As John said, the Word became flesh. And He died. He actually died. And that's, again, is recorded here in verse 50. He yielded up the Spirit after, after suffering what we talked about last week, the mockery, the beatings, and the full force of the wrath of Almighty God, His own Father. He died. 
he yielded up his spirit. And there were plenty of witnesses to this fact, just to name a few. Everybody at the crucifixion, and there, there appears to be a, 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 you know, a large crowd there. And certainly, um, this is on a roadside, so certainly even those who didn't hang around, you know, would have, there would have been people passing by and seeing what's going on. So everybody that is talked about here in this passage who was at the crucifixion, including the apostles and uh, the women who ministered to Jesus that are mentioned in verse 55, um, which also includes his mother, by the way, the Roman soldiers um, who arrested him and took him, beat him and stood by the cross, the Jewish leaders who wrongly condemned him, mocked him while he hung there. All of these people saw that he, in fact, died. In fact, uh, we have some of their responses recorded. Look at uh, verse 54 after, after talking about some of, the, uh, some of the events taking place there, the earthquake and the, t- and the uh, opening of the, the breaking of the rocks, opening of the tombs and so forth. Verse 54 says, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. They, they watched him die. And they, they, they verified his death. Um, they, we're, we're told in the book of John, uh, in chapter 19, that uh, because they wanted to get all of, all of them down from the crosses quickly, they came to break their legs. That's just so that they would die. Quickly, I talked about that last week. If their legs are broken, they can't push themselves up to breathe. And so the soldiers came to break their legs. And when they came to Jesus, they found that He was already dead. And there wasn't any doubt in their mind that He was dead. He was dead. And just to make sure, one of them ran a sword into His side. And John recorded that and, and, uh, and, and what happened uh, following that, the blood and the what John describes as blood and, and uh, water gushing from the side of Jesus. There wasn't any doubt to the apostles, to the women, to the Jewish leaders, to the Romans. He was dead. And that was reported to the authorities as well, Pilate. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Now here we're just told about, in, in Matthew's account, we're just told about Joseph, uh, verses 57 um, through about verse 60 there. He came and, and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. He was a secret follower of Jesus. And so was Nicodemus in, in, uh, in John's account of this. Again, in John chapter 19, uh, verses 38 through 40. John mentions Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus is the one that comes to Jesus by night in John 3. So he too, it appears, was a, was a follower of Christ. Kind of a uh, closet Christian, you might say. He was very cautious about but he, 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 he knew there was something special going on here and was in some sense a disciple. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus with Pilate's permission and prepared him for burial and put him in Joseph's tomb. 
Again, I think Matthew's whole point in giving us these things is to show there's no doubt he was dead. He died. Verse 59 says that Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. More witnesses to the fact that Jesus died. And the women um, saw him buried. The, the very next verse, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. They, they were at a distance watching as he hung on the cross. No doubt hearing his last words. And in fact, his own mother, um, you know, Jesus um, uh, committed uh, the care of her to, to John, the apostle. Behold, your, your mother, and he said to his mother, Behold your son. And uh, tradition tells us that John did take on the, uh, the care of Mary. So these women saw him on the cross. They saw him die. They saw him buried. He was dead. The eternal living one, the Son of God, the eternal Lagos, became flesh and became dead. He died. The guards at the tomb knew that he was dead. Verses 62 through 66. Um, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. Now, I don't think they really believe this. Um, I do find it interesting that they, they seem to have a better recollection of Jesus saying that than the apostles. That's just, that's just an interesting side note. I'm, I, I, the apostles just, they probably haven't forgotten it either, but they just, they, they just don't see this playing out. I mean, they're in total, uh, a total fog here and total confusion. You know, he told us he would be raised from the dead, but uh, he told us he would, he would suffer and die and, and be raised from the dead, but all they know at this moment is he's, he's dead. He's dead. At any rate, his, his, uh, his opponents rem- remember that as well, or, or maybe somebody's reminded them of it. And so they, they, they complain to Pilate, you know, we need a guard, um, so that his disciples don't you know, devise some kind of trick here. Verse 64, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can, so that uh, so they rather went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, Matthew's the only one that gives us this detail. And again, just I, I think just driving home the fact that there's no doubt here, because as Matthew says, this, this lie that, uh, that they devise, he, he tells us about over here in verses uh, 11 uh, through 14, is still circulating that the disciples stole the body. And so Matthew's just making it clear here. Look, there were plenty of witnesses. Everybody saw him die on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea 
put him in the tomb. And not only that, but those who hated him, the, the chief priests, and they, they went requesting guards from Pilate, and Pilate uh, granted it. Now, uh, I, I guess maybe these were Roman soldiers. Uh, we, we don't know for sure. D.A. Carson speculates that they might have been temple police. Um, but at, at any rate, there are guards set at the tomb with the official seal. That is, the tomb is sealed with Pilate's approval and authority. And, and guards are set. The man is dead and in the tomb. And nobody's disputing that at this point. It is just simply presented as fact. He was dead, as he says in Revelation 1, verse 18, I died. I became dead. Dead. Now, what does that mean for us? Why is that important? What, um, what did Jesus' death accomplish? He was dead. Okay, He was dead. But what does that do for you and me? Well, let me go back uh, briefly to some of Jesus' predictions. Um, by the way, his, his own testimony here that this would happen. Uh, we've mentioned these before. In Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. In Matthew 17, 22 and 23, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. In Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, As Jesus was going to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. And then in Matthew 26, 1 and 2, He said, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And now that is what has taken place. Why? Well, first of all, He is our... Well, let me say it this way. He is the propitiation. The only one. He is our propitiation. That's, that's true. But He's the only propitiation. That is, he, He's the only one that can take away sin. And it had to be accomplished through His... Death. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. His life had to be given as a ransom for many. Now, this is pictured in all of the Old Testament sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews makes the point that without the shedding of blood, 
There is no remission of sins. That is, there's no forgiveness, no removal, no taking away of sins without death. The wages of sin is death. Death is the penalty for sin, and without that, there's no, there's no um, remission of sin. There has to be the shedding of blood. And so, that's why the sacrifices were instituted. Although, again, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So, the sacrifices of the Old Testament did not actually remove sin, but they pictured an event that would. They pictured a greater sacrifice that would actually do what they only pictured, what they only looked forward to. So, those Old Testament sacrifices, like all of the Old Testament Levitical um, worship and, and uh, service, uh, those sacrifices were just types and shadows of a reality in the future. Now the reality is here. And this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew twenty twenty eight. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But the blood of Jesus, the righteous, eternal Son of God, does. But He had to die. He had to give His life, as He says there in Matthew twenty twenty-eight. So we're told in Romans 3.25 by the Apostle Paul that God put Him forward, that is, put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood. A reference to His death. He had to die in order to propitiate, in order to appease the wrath of God, in order to take away our sin, in order to pay the price that we Oh, but cannot pay. And that term propitiation is used again in three other places. One is Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. I think that's a reference to the incarnation. Same thing John is talking about in John 1.14. He became flesh. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. So the writer of Hebrews is saying he had to become a man, and he had to be become a, a, a he had to be a child of Abraham um, in order to make propitiation. That is, in, in order to appease the wrath of God, take away the sins of his people. In First John two two, we looked at in Sunday school this morning. Uh, he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And same book, 1 John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So His death means that our sins are removed, paid for, taken away. His death means that the wrath of God is appeased. That is, God is satisfied. That's the way Isaiah says it in Isaiah 53. God is satisfied with what Jesus did at Calvary. He's the 
sufficient payment for our sins. That, by that word, in that word sufficient, I mean, it, there's, there's nothing else required. He paid it all, like we've seen. He paid it all, and nothing else is required. Sometimes when we use the word sufficient, we say, ah, oh, that's sufficient. It's like it's, it'll do. <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, sometimes we don't, we, we don't um, mean it in such a good way. Uh, but when, we, when we're using it in this way, it, it's sufficient. It, it, it alone accomplished, accomplished what needed to be accomplished. That is, the death of Christ, His blood being shed, accomplished the removal of our sin and the appeasement of the wrath of God. But, he didn't remain dead. <laughs> and, th- and these things are tied together. I've I, I got to say this, even though you know, we, we usually tie the removal of our sins, like I just did, because Scripture does this. We, we, we tie it to the shedding of His blood and His death, and that's certainly true. And yet, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that if there's no resurrection, we are yet in our sins. We are still in sin. Why is that? If, if His death took away our sins, why does the resurrection matter? Well, let's, first, let's just get to the fact of it. He is alive. And again, as He says to John in Revelation 1, I am the living one who became dead and am living. I was dead and am alive. I think is the way the King James puts it. Just clear. Point blank. I, I, I am the living one. I was dead and am alive. So he didn't remain dead. He is risen. And we see that, of course, in chapter 28. The women come on the Sabbath to the tomb. Verse 2 says, And behold, there was an earthquake, a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Well, I guess so. And by the way, this, again, you know, the guards are there, even though they're, though they're going to lie and talk about being asleep and the disciples came and stole his body. They are there and they are aware of what's going on. They know Jesus is in the tomb dead. And they're awake when the angel comes on the scene. And of course, you know, now they're not in too good shape. Once, once the angel arrives, they are, they're like dead men. They became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Again, another testimony of His death. He was crucified. He is not here, for He has risen as He said. He's alive, the angel is saying. I know you've come for Jesus, the one who was crucified, the one who was dead, but He's not here. That's just, you know, a lot of times you go to somebody's house and you knock on the door and they're not home. They're not here. But you're not used to that when you go to a cemetery. <laughs> I mean, I guess we don't see, you know, we don't know for sure, but, you know, maybe somebody would say, but we're sure they're there. That is, their remains. Their remains are there. The body that they laid in the tomb is there. I mean, it's decayed, but 
something is left. It may be totally gone to dust, but the dust, whatever, whatever is remaining, is there. But not, that's not the case this time. They come, and, by, and this is only the third day, so it has, hasn't even had time to decay. They're certainly expecting to find a body. And they come to the tomb, and the angel says, He is not here. The one who was dead, the one who was crucified, He is not here, for He has risen. <laughs> He's alive. And that's what Jesus is saying to John in Revelation. I am He who became dead and is living. So that's, that's the good news that we carry today. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the living One, became dead. Why does that matter? Because we're all sinners and we're all in need of a Savior. We need for payment to be made for our sins and we cannot do it ourselves. If we're left to pay for our own sins, then guess what? We're going to pay eternally. There's no hope of ever, ever, ever being able to say the debt is, the debt is done, paid in full. We needed a Savior to come and pay for our sins. He had to die in order to do that. He gave His life a ransom for many. So the living one became dead, but now He's living. So that's what we, we are able to go and tell people. He, he came, the living, eternal Son of God came. He became man, and He became dead for the sins of His people. He took the wrath of God upon Himself but that's not the end of the story. He is living. He's not in the tomb. He's risen. I'm, you know, it's just a, a, an assumption here, but uh, this, was, this tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. I, I, I guess he still got to use it. Because when his time came, it was not occupied anymore. Jesus didn't stay there long. Well, what does that mean for us? What is, what is accomplished in the resurrection of Christ? Well, just a couple of things here to note, although they're very, very important things. Um, first, or, and I'm going to say it two ways, but he, he is vindicated in that the resurrection proves that Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice for our sins. So again, if I go back for a moment to Matthew 20, 28 and, and Jesus' words, the Son of Man, speaking of Himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Well, how do we know? How do we know that, that He could really do that? That He's an acceptable sacrifice for our sins? In Romans 1 4. Paul says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Now, he didn't didn't become the Son of God in the resurrection at the moment He was raised. Although, we, we read earlier... Psalm 2, where the Lord said, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. And that's a reference to the resurrection. We know that because that's the way it's applied 
by the apostles in the book of Acts. So, is, is that saying, okay, at that moment he became the Son of God? Is Paul saying here that at that moment, the resurrection, he became the Son of God? No. And that's, this, that's why this translation, uh, the ESV, words it this way. He was declared to be the Son of God. He didn't become the Son of God at, the, at His resurrection, but the resurrection was like an announcement, a stamp of approval, a declaration that, yes, indeed, this is the Son of God. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. That is, He came out from the dead, living proof that He is indeed the Son of God and therefore able to pay the ransom for many. And so, Paul says also in Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He was delivered up for our trespasses. Well, we've already talked about that. In His death, our sins are removed. Paul makes this distinction between the two events here. His death and His resurrection. Romans 4.25 He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Or it can be translated because of. He was raised because of our justification. And I think that's what Paul has in mind in 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, if, if there's no resurrection, Christ isn't raised from the dead. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then you're still in your sin. He was raised for our justification. In other words, there's no, there's no justification without the resurrection. There's no validation. There's no proof of forgiveness of sins, justification, apart from the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is God's own declaration that the sacrifice made was effective. That He did indeed pay the ransom for the sins of many. And so He's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And our justification is validated and confirmed. And He's also vindicated in this way that that He is the King of Israel. You know, they, they mocked Him with that title. King of the Jews. King of Israel. And now, it is shown in the resurrection to be true. The promised and long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews, has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the all-sufficient payment for our sins. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the King. And just a few thoughts here to close with. Kind of, kind of pull it all together. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, we have, in other words, how do we benefit? What, what is the Scripture telling us 
about the necessity of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we now have, first of all, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Another reference to His death. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Secondly, and I'm not doing these in any particular order, but, but uh, um, I don't know, some things, you know, if, like if you try to put them in an order of importance, it would really be difficult, wouldn't it? I mean, forgiveness of sins, that's, that's extremely important. So is this one. Secondly, we now have access to God. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, we now have access to God. Now, I think what you and I have to do, in fact, I'd recommend this, you know, um, if you haven't already done it, you've probably already done it, but what you and I have to do to fully appreciate that is, uh, well, of course, read the whole Bible, but especially pay attention to um, books of you know, Leviticus, Exodus and Leviticus, the institution um, and the execution of the Levitical priesthood, why it was necessary. You know, we, we talked Wednesday night about the holiness of God, and uh, one of the examples in the study we did was from Leviticus 10, where the sons of Aaron came and offered um, unauthorized um, offering before the Lord, and God struck them dead on the spot. And they were authorized priests. But they were bringing something before the Lord that He had not authorized. So, first of all, you had to have authorized priests. I mean, it couldn't just be anybody come to God. It had to be sons of Aaron, the Aaronic priesthood. And then secondly, there were certain ways they had to do things. Everybody just didn't have access to God. And that was uh, uh, made even more... Um, manifest, plain, and when they, when they constructed the tabernacle and then later the temple, because they put curtains, first of all, separating the, uh, the, the place of worship from the people. And then when you got on the inner, in, inner uh, part of the temple, you had the Holy of Holies where only the high priest was allowed to go once a year. And there was another curtain there separating it even from the, the outer um, area. So there was clearly a separation between God and His people. And every day when the the children of Israel who lived in the vicinity of the tabernacle or the temple, every day when they got up to go about their business, they could look down there and see that structure with those curtains and know that the presence of God is manifest in there, the throne of God is in there, and we can't go in there. Because you can't just walk in on God. You don't have access to God. But now, the writer of Hebrews says, let me give you a couple really quick. I'll try to be fast here. Um, you turn there if you want, or you can just listen. Hebrews 4.16. And this is because of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That exhortation to draw near to the throne, like I say, we may have trouble understanding the significance of that. The Jews would have understood it perfectly because that's a no-no. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, we can do it because of what Christ has done in our behalf. So draw near. Again, in, in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what he's saying is Jesus has opened up the way for us to go in and enter in behind the curtain into the very presence of God. Uh, Hebrews seven nineteen. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, um, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Hebrews ten verses nineteen through twenty three. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. It's a way of saying, because of the death of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, He has opened up the way into the Holy of Holies. So therefore, because we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith. You see what he's saying? Because again, um, this idea of drawing near to God personally would be kind of a foreign thought. So he's saying do it and do it with full assurance of faith because of what Christ has done. Let us, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. Now, this this is uh, this this truth is alluded to in a in a special way, a miraculous way, in the passage before us, Matthew twenty seven. When Jesus died, verse fifty, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And verse fifty one tells us, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to Bottom. That is the the separator. <laughs> the separator that separated God from His people or the, or the people from God was torn, ripped open when Jesus gave up His life. He has opened up access to God. He's also given us life everlasting. John 11, 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He has also given us, through his death and resurrection, sonship. Romans 8. 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Similarly, in Galatians 4.4, 4, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Ephesians 1.5 says, He has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And 1 John 3.1 says, See what kind of love... The Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, verse 2 says. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And He has given us an inheritance. Ephesians 1.8, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance. That's how Paul's praying for the Ephesians. I want you to know what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. And again, similarly in Colossians uh, 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. In Hebrews 9.15, Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And Peter just says, Bless God. Bless God for that. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. The whole of our salvation rests on these facts. Let me close with this, and, <clears throat> and we're done. Short and sweet here. Because what, what do we do with this? Look real quickly, chapter 27, uh, chapter 28, rather, I'm sorry. Uh, when the women come to the tomb, and, the, and they see the angel, and the angel speaks to them in verse 6, He is not here, for He has risen, as He said. That is, He, he was dead, but He is alive. And then what does the angel say? Come see the place where He lay. You know, there's, there's still proof that a person can experience that Jesus is alive. Now, supposedly they, they, they know where the tomb is in Jerusalem, near Jerusalem, and, and I don't know if they got the right site or not. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But that's not what I'm suggesting anyway. Although, you know, you could. You could go over there and look at that tomb and see that it's empty. Um, but because He's living... He can be known. He can be experienced. Come see, the angel says. That's like, 
Come see for yourself. I'm telling you, he was dead and he's alive. Come see. That's one of two closing exhortations this morning. If you don't already know him, come, come see. And the second one is this. If you do already know him, verse 7, go quickly and tell. Isn't that interesting? The, the angel says, hey, he's not here. He's alive. Come see. Now, go tell. Come see and go tell. He was dead. He's alive. He became dead and He is living. He is living. And it's because He lives, we live. Would you stand, please? encourage you to come back tonight and uh, as I mentioned earlier brother brother Dickie's going to bring the word tonight and I'm looking forward to that and and uh, just pray for him you know I, I always I, I, I covet your prayers and uh, and I know he does too and, and uh, so so lift him up this afternoon and <clears throat> brother Carl I guess I'm kind of late to pray for his sermon this morning but he, he was um, preaching at, at uh, Kingston Road this morning but uh, of course I, I know you're faithful to do it but just always remember them as well too as they're out and out and about. And let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll dismiss. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.